So text those in, and we're going to give them about 25, 30 minutes to wow us about hell. You ready? Come on. You're going to come on up, right? He's going to get on the stage so he can really lord it over you. Well, good evening, Houston. I'm from the greater Seattle area where it's a very different kind of humidity, and I much prefer the humidity in my neck of the woods to the kind you guys have here. Uh, I just wanted to start by saying, by using my influence as your speaker tonight to encourage you to vote on the list of what topic is next. I really think that the food, Christianity, and gluttony thing is a topic that we Christians don't talk enough about, and, and I'm a case in point. So I mean that in all sincerity. This is Gluttony and sloth are like the, the forgivable sin that nobody talks about, and um, I think we need to talk more about it. Uh, I'm a big fan of movies. Uh, anybody that has been following my ministry for any amount of time will have heard me talk about all sorts of kind of movies. And I want to find out, is there anybody here who's a fan of the Night at the Museum movies with Ben Stiller? In the second movie, War, uh, Battle of the Smithsonian, there is an exhibit. It's a big bronze muscular statue who says, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Does anybody know what the name of that exhibit is? Just yell it out if you know. It's the thinker, you know, the guy who's kind of got his elbow on his knee and his thing on his hand. Um, that is a symbol that we at my ministry, Rethinking Hell, use in a lot of our material. We, are con we have the conviction that too many of us Christians go through our Christian walk just accepting uncritically what it is that we've learned from our pastors, from our professors, from the media, from culture. And we really want to encourage Christians to think more carefully, to return to Scripture, and to really let Scripture be the guide for um, what it is that they believe. And we also very much share Theology on Tap's vision for um, disagreeing agreeably in a loving and charitable way. Too often this is a topic that is uh, that produces more heat than light, and we think that's really tragic. There's no reason that Christians who hold to different views of hell, for the most part, within a certain within certain boundaries, shouldn't be able to fellowship with each other and minister alongside each other and take, a, take the gospel to a dying world that so desperately needs it. So I really appreciate Theology on Tap's vision and for inviting me here. Um, and I could say a whole lot more about my ministry. Feel free to ask me more during the Q&A. Oh, thank you. So he's doing that, by the way, because I told him earlier today at lunch that I, I haven't, uh, I quit drinking about 10 years ago and I was worried I wasn't going to have anything to drink here. So he brought me a vanilla, vanilla cream soda. Thank you. Now, there's another thing that, for anybody that does happen to know about the thinker, what you may not know about that statue is that it actually didn't originate as the thinker. Um, the thinker actually originally was a two-foot-tall statue of sorts on a larger sculpture by the founder of modern sculpture, Auguste Rodin. He created a, a huge doorway for a museum that never actually opened, um, and that doorway is called the Gates of Hell. And the thinker is at the top of that gate, and it's the basis for all the much larger thinker statues uh, that, that we're more familiar with to this day. And the Gates of Hell is based on Dante Alighieri's The Inferno. And uh, as many of you might be aware, Dante's Inferno has had more of an impact on the way a lot of Christians think about hell than the Bible has. Um, and so there's a whole lot of misconceptions that, that Christians have about hell because of the inferno. And I'm going to spend some time sort of undoing some of those misconceptions for you. And it's not just the inferno that causes a lot of misconceptions about hell. It's also um, poor translations 
So we're gonna tonight. We're gonna talk a little bit, a little bit about the King James version and some other things that might have skewed some of our understanding of what hell really is. And then also, there's a lot of misconceptions out there based on just really shoddy, careless interpretation, and we're gonna talk about some of those as well. I'm gonna go through those in reverse order tonight, and then I'm gonna talk a little bit about the goodness of God as it pertains to this topic, and then finally. I'm going to talk about where Christians that are informed can legitimately disagree on this topic and what the different views are and why they believe what we do. And then we'll take a break and we'll have a nice panel discussion. We'll give each other hell. Um, so I'm going to go through those. Yeah, the, pun, the puns are going to be going all night. Just be ready for them. It's such a hot topic. Let's, you know. So I want to talk first about some of the misconceptions that we have based on careless biblical interpretation. And one of the common misconceptions is that when the Bible talks about hell, what it's really talking about is like evil and suffering in the here and now. Like people, other people are hell, right? You might have kind of heard something along those lines. Although that does kind of resonate with the way that we often use the word hell, you know, oh, it's like hell on earth, that kind of thing. The reality is there is no biblical support for that understanding of hell. Um, All of the biblical authors use the language of hell for future divine punishment or judgment uh, for sins. Um, it, is, it is consistently a penalty, not just sort of the way things are because of sin. So for example, in Jesus, uh, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 33, he tells the Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you going to escape being sentenced to hell? Literally, the Greek there reads, how are you going to escape from the judgment of hell? This is, this is a judgment. It is a, a, it is a, uh, a penalty, a sentence. It is not just the way things are. And we've got to take that seriously. Whatever we understand that penalty to be, we've got to take it seriously and recognize that that's what it is. Another thing that you might have heard is that hell was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. That's a very popular myth. And that is what it is. It's a myth. The earliest evidence that we have for the view that hell was a garbage dump outside of Jerusalem comes from about 1200 AD. So almost over a millennium after the Bible, the New Testament was written, that's when a medieval rabbi um, made the claim that this was a garbage dump, the, the Valley of the Son of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem. It's not true. What's more, there's no archaeological evidence to support that that's the case. There's not rubbish and trash that you can dig up under the ground or something like that. It's just invented out of whole cloth. So next time you hear that claim, just know that it's, it's not true. And, and I'm not the only one who says so. Francis Chan and Preston Sprinkle, for example, in their book Erasing Hell from about 10 years ago made the same point. Also, you might have heard that hell just is that valley outside of Jerusalem, the valley of the sons of Hinnom. And the reason they, they say that is because the word Gehenna, or we say Gehenna in English, it is a combination of the word Geh, meaning valley, and Henna, which is pointing to Hinnom. But you won't find anywhere in the literature from that time period when the New Testament was written in which that word, Gehenna, refers to the valley. You see, the, the reality is that the, the, the valley of the sons of Hinnom, which is talked about a lot in the Old Testament, is, the, is what the word Gehenna derives from, but what's going on is that the word Gehenna is evoking that picture in the Old Testament of the Old Testament valley of the sons of Hinnom being a place where God will one day judge his enemies. Um, so, for example, in Psalm 50, 21, in our um, biblical text, our Masoretic text, as we scholars like to call it in order to make ourselves sound smarter, God says, now I rebuke you 
and lay the charge before you. But in the Aramaic Targums, the Targums were kind of like a translation and commentary from the Hebrew Old Testament into Aramaic that, the, that was being compiled around the time of Christ, and we have extant copies from, um, from shortly after the time of Christ. And in the Aramaic Targums, that psalm is rendered, I shall reprove you in this world, and I will arrange Gehenna before you in the world to come. It's not the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom right outside of Jerusalem. It's, it's appealing to an Old Testament picture in which that valley is one where God promised he would one day judge his enemies. Um, and that picture is evoked by Jesus' use of the word Gehenna. So no, it's not a garbage dump. No, it's not other people in the here and now. No, it's not a valley outside of Jerusalem. It's a place where God will one day judge. And then the last uh, misconception that I want to address that comes from sort of careless biblical interpretation is um, a lot of people have this idea that hell is where you go for rejecting Jesus. And this is often the reason why people will ask things like, well, what about those who've never heard of Jesus? How can you go to hell for rejecting Jesus if you've never heard, him, or heard, heard about him before? But that's, but that's a mistake. Um, the Bible doesn't treat hell as the place where you go to be judged for rejecting Jesus. It's where you go to be judged for your unrepented of sins. Now, some people might point to John 3.18, in which Jesus says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And it will sound to some people as if what he's saying is it's because they have rejected the Son of God that they, will, that they are already condemned. But that's not quite right. Imagine if there was a, a, a bunch of death row criminals they were awaiting the electric chair, and the, gov and, and, and the governor issued them a pardon, but it was like one they had to accept, let's just say. I know that's not how it works. but Now, imagine if I said to you something like, whoever accepts the governor's pardon will go free, but whoever does not accept the governor's pardon is condemned to death already because he has not accepted the governor's pardon. Well, think about it for a moment. It's not the fact that they refuse the pardon that merits their death. It's the crimes they committed and they could have chosen to be forgiven of those crimes, but they refused to do so. So the, the, uh, if you look throughout the scriptures where it talks about why people are condemned in hell, you have passages like Revelation 20.12, the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Matthew 16.27, Jesus says the Son of Man will repay each person according to what he has done. And in fact, the Bible testifies to the fact that each of us knows that we've sinned. There is nobody blissfully unaware of the fact that they are guilty of moral crimes. There's just not. Now, we might think, well, it's, it's, a minimal, it's, it's a minor crime or something like that. And yeah, we can quibble about that. But the point is, there is nobody whose conscience is perfectly clear. And so Paul says, for example, in Romans 2.15, that they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. Now, there is still a conversation to be had, and we theologians do like to have that conversation a lot about what, what about those who've never heard of Christ. But the point is, is that if people who've never heard of Christ do end up going to hell, it's not because they rejected the Jesus they never heard about. It's because they deserved it. It's because they sinned. But that's probably a topic we'll talk a little bit about tonight. I usually get that kind of question. Now I want to turn to misconceptions that are a result of bad translations. And here... If there's anybody here who reveres the King James Version, I apologize in advance. I'm not trying, 
I'm not trying to offend you or, you know, the King James has a, a cherished place in Christian history. I'm not trying to diminish that. But in many places, it is a crappy translation. It just is. So, for example, um, the, the King James translators, for some reason that I don't know, chose to translate something like four different words all with the word hell, even though those words referred to multiple different things. And by the way, it also did that inconsistently with some words. So for example, in the Hebrew Old Testament, there's a word sheol is how we say it in English, especially if you're in Texas probably. But it's sheol is how you would say it in Hebrew. And we theologians debate whether it means you know, the underworld where there are spirits of dead people or whether it's the grave. We, we have that debate, but the point is it refers to the grave, the pit, the underworld, where the dead are, whatever the dead are. Well, so in Genesis 37-35, the King James Version translates that word, having Jacob say to Joseph, whom he thought had died, this is in the whole Joseph and his brother's story, he says, I will go down into the grave to my son while mourning. And that's a good translation. But the very same word, Sha'ol, the King James translates differently in Deuteronomy 32-22, where it says, a fire is kindled in my anger and shall burn into the lowest hell. Well, wait a minute. Why is Sha'ol the grave over here, and then over here it's hell? Um, and that's the kind of thing the King James does. It's an incredibly theologically uh, biased translation when it comes to this word. Um, the New Testament Greek equivalent to the Hebrew Sha'ol is Hades in Greek. We Americans like to say Hades. Um, and here again, the King James translators chose to translate that word hell, and it has made a real mess of things. So, for example, in Luke 16, 23, the so-called story of the rich man and Lazarus that Jesus tells, and we can debate until the cows come home about whether it's a literal story, whether it's a parable, whether it's to be taken literally, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is, um, in Luke 16, 23, the King James says that, in, that the rich man was in hell in torments. But the word that it's translating is Hades, Hades, the dead, the place of the dead, the underworld. And in fact, we know this can't be hell because the rich man pleads with Abraham to send Lazarus to go warn his still-living brothers who are blissfully unaware of their impending doom. There will, when, when everybody is resurrected, and we're going to come back to that in just a moment, and they're standing before the throne to be judged, there's not going to be anybody still going about daily life unaware of what's about to happen. This is about, this, scene, this whole scene is set in the underworld, whatever, however literally we might take that. Um, another example is in Revelation 20.13. This is where um, another place where the King James does, I think, a pretty poor job of translating this word. Because in Revelation 20.13, the King James says that death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. Well, wait a minute. I thought we were taught that people go to hell for eternity and don't get out. But here it's saying everybody that's in hell is going to come out and then go into the lake of fire, <laughs> you know, in another part of the debate. But the point is, this is not hell. The King James translators are mistranslating the word Hades, and using it to point to final punishment. A third word that the King James translators do, and by the way, it's not just the King James. The ESV does this, the NASB does this, the NIV does it, and on and on it goes, is a verb that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2.4, tartarao. And some of you might recognize that that shares a certain number of syllables with the word tartarus. 
Tartarus was in Greek mythology the place where like semi-divine beings were held for judgment. Um, and what Peter is doing is he's appealing to that to talk about how there are fallen angels who are currently held in something like a Tartarus awaiting judgment. And the King James translates that hell. It says that uh, the angels were cast into hell. But here's the problem. The very text goes on to say that that's where they were committed to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So whatever Peter's talking about there, this Tartarus, however much he's actually leaning upon the Greek mythological Tartarus, he's not talking about hell. He's talking about a holding place of sorts for semi-divine beings, namely fallen angels, who are awaiting their final judgment. So it's sort of like the angelic equivalent of Hades. If, if humans go to Hades when they're dead, whatever that means, angels go to whatever this Tartarus thing is that Peter's talking about. And another thing, and this is really problematic, I think, one of the things that the King James does is it renders certain texts as if Jesus went to hell. And I consider that to be borderline heresy. Um, in fact, the, the Word of Faith movement, the prosperity gospel, a lot of people in that movement say that Jesus, after he died on the cross, went to hell to continue bearing the punishment we deserve. But brothers and sisters, Jesus said as he was breathing his last, to tell us die, it is finished. There was no further punishment Jesus had to bear on our behalf when he died. He did it by dying. But that didn't stop the King James translators from saying in Acts 2.31 that Jesus' soul was not left in hell. And by the way, it's not just the King James that has caused a lot of people to have this misconception that Jesus went to hell. It's also the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed in our English translations say that Jesus descended into hell but the original word was Hades in Greek or Infernum in uh, Latin, and it was referring to that same underworld that wherever Jesus went to, whether people are conscious there or not, whether there are disembodied souls there or not, it's still uh, the place of the dead. It's not, it's not the final judgment in hell. Now, one last category of misconceptions I want to turn to before I start talking about where informed Christians who rightly recognize those misconceptions, where it is that we can disagree, I want to talk about those misconceptions I alluded to earlier that are based on Dante Alighieri's Inferno. Um, there are really, really graphic depictions of torture and torment in the Inferno. And I don't think that, that Dante was intending to say this is actually how things were. He was a poet, after all. But you have things like demons torturing condemned sinners, flaying off their flesh as it regenerates. Satan himself is eternally chomping on, chewing Judas Iscariot in his mouth for all eternity. And these kind of pictures have led a lot of people to think, and you see this in popular culture, in cartoons, in movies, in books, and so on and so forth, um, that demons are torturing people in hell and that Satan is the king of hell. That is not at all what the Bible says about hell and the demons. Uh, and Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, he, he sends uh, unrepentant human beings into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And in Revelation 20, 10, in John's apocalyptic symbolic vision that he saw while in exile on the island of Patmos, he sees the devil tormented forever and ever in a lake of fire. So no, Satan is not reigning in hell. Demons are not torturing anybody in hell. We can take the most wooden literal view of eternal torment, which we'll talk about in a minute, and even then, the devil and his angels will be every bit as much subjected to that torture or torment as everybody else. So there's no basis for thinking that demons rule or Satan rules in hell. And 
And all that other extreme graphic detail that you can read in the inferno about hell, there's not a shred of basis for that in Scripture. The reality is, apart from hell being a very negative experience, even on a traditional eternal torment view, the nature of that misery is not at all spelled out in great detail. Um, there are, in fact, there are reasonable arguments to be made. I'm not saying I buy them necessarily, but there are reasonable arguments to be made that even the biblical pictures and language about fire and things like that in hell are more about they're trying to get across the psychological and spiritual internal torment that people experience because they are forever separated from God, whatever being separated from God might mean. So hopefully that is gives you an idea of some of the misconceptions that maybe maybe you've heard, maybe you've accepted at times past. Hopefully you can put those behind us, uh, or behind yourselves, and start to think more carefully about what the Bible really does have to say about hell. It's not to say that all those that getting all those misconceptions cleared up is going to answer all the questions. That's what I'm here for. But um, wow, I think I got one or two left. So that's that's good enough. But uh, we'll come back to our disagreements as Christians in a moment. Now I want to turn for a moment to the topic of hell and the goodness of God. It's very often asked, how can a loving and good God, a merciful God, send a people to hell? And what I want to argue here is that anybody on our panel, no matter what view of hell that they hold, including myself, I think we can all agree that whatever happens to those who are condemned to hell, it is precisely the goodness and love of God that motivates him to send people there. Now, that might strike you as a little bit odd at first, but think about this for a moment. Many, if not most, of our sins are committed against other people. And this is really important because the other, those people whom you are sinning against, those people against whom I am sinning, are every bit as much bearers of the divine image. They're created in the image of God, every bit as much as me. And there, we can, again, theologians like to debate. And one of the things we debate is just what it means that we are created in God's image. But whatever it means, one of the things it means is that we as human beings are innately valuable. We, we have worth. We have, we're precious. We have dignity. It's not to say we're not fallen. We are. Not to say that we're not sinful. We are. But we are precious in God's sight precisely because we bear his image. And if you think about it, that's probably why we um, lament, we cry out at the injustice that's done when, say, a police officer shoots an unarmed person of color and for no reason whatsoever and gets off scot-free. We cry out at the injustice because a bearer of the divine image, no matter what he might have been doing, maybe he was stealing something, maybe he was, wasn't doing anything wrong at all, but he didn't deserve to be shot and killed. And so when a police officer gets off scot-free for that, we, we rage at how you know, unjust that is. Or what about when a child sex trafficker either commits suicide in his cell or is killed by other cellmates or whatever happened to Epstein? He died in that prison cell, but few people think he got justice. Even though he got killed or killed himself in prison, the fact that he wasn't tried, he didn't have to hear the, the testimony from people who, the families of people that he hurt, um, and the fact that he wasn't sentenced to a just penalty makes us think he was not, he didn't receive justice, even though he died in, in prison. So, and, and I think that this is behind why in Genesis 9-6, after the flood narrative, God says that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? Because God made him in his own image. 
You see, God loves his image bearers, and he hates when we treat those image bearers like they're garbage. But that's what we do when we sin. And it's not just his image bearers. It's all of creation. It's, yes, when God finally created Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, he says it is very good. But leading up to that point, he said it was really good. Well, he just said good. But the point is, is that although creation itself has fallen as well, it too is a treasure that we were given the responsibility as humans to be stewards of. And when many of our sins are sins against that creation. So I would argue that, the, that it's necessary, um, that it's, it, it is motivated by God's very love and goodness that he would send people to hell, however we understand that, as just penalty for their sin if they refuse forgiveness in Christ. And I'll add one more thing. If you've got somebody who doesn't want to be with God forever, doesn't want to be with his people forever, doesn't want to live in the way that God calls us to live, maybe the loving thing to do is to let them not do that, whatever that might look like, which is what we'll talk about in a minute. Now, I could say a lot more about the hell and the goodness of God, but chances are I won't be able to answer all of your questions, in part because I'm a, a scholar of Scripture. I'm not a philosopher. So if you have more questions about that, I would encourage you to talk to somebody like Jerry Walls. He might be able to, and I think he's a longtime friend of Theology on Tap. So talk to him about the philosophical stuff. Come to me about the Bible stuff, because he's wrong about all the Bible stuff. All right. And he and I are friends, so I can say that about him. If you're not a friend, you could say about, it too, about him, too. All right, so now up until this point, I think that all of the other panelists could probably say yes and amen to what I've said so far. They can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think they can. And what fun is that? So let's start talking, let's start having some fun and talk about where we disagree. There are, broadly speaking, three Christian views of hell. And I want to talk about each of them for a moment before we take our break and then uh, have a panel discussion um, because I don't think that all three of these, these views are taken as seriously as they ought to be by people who have not really studied this issue in depth. Because the reality is that each of these three views has a, a lot of meat to their case. That meat to, in their case is not just biblical. Every single one of these three views appeals to Scripture. It's not just biblical, though. It's also theological. Every one of these views has distinctly theological reasons for thinking that their reading of Scripture is correct. And they each also have a lot of philosophy behind why they think their view is correct. And they also each have a lot of historical reasons for thinking that their view is legitimate and probably correct. And I want to go through those really quickly before we take our break and have a conversation. So first of all is the view that has been so historically dominant throughout church history that it's come to be known in the literature as traditionalism. Now, for those who hold to this view, the word traditionalism is not meant to say that you are believing it simply because it's tradition. That's not the point of the word. The word is simply to say that it's been the tradition. It's been what has dominated Christian thought, at least since the time of Augustine, and my traditionalist friends on the panel might push it back even further, and they'll be wrong. But the reality is that it, is it has an extreme historical pedigree. So you go back to the second century A.D., in the latter half of that century, right around 160, 170, is when I can see the first Christians teaching eternal torment. Tatian of Adiabene, Athenagoras of Athens, fast forward a couple hundred years later, uh, Augustine of Hippo, go another thousand years later, Thomas Aquinas, another 600 or 500 years later to the Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, and on and on it goes. It's hugely popular. And according to this view, traditionalism, hell is where the lost will suffer forever. 
But it's not just that. That's very often what we think, when we hear the phrase eternal torment or eternal conscious punishment, there are different ways of putting it, we just sort of focus on the fact that it's torment and it's ongoing. But that's only part of the story. You see, we as Christians, I already pointed out how um, the places in the Bible where the King James renders it hell often refers to what's happen, happening immediately after death, and that's not hell. You see, Christians ever since the time of Christ have believed in resurrection. And not just resurrection of the saved, but the resurrection of all humankind. Whether that's at the beginning of a thousand years if you're a premillennialist and you're wrong, or whether it's at the end of a thousand years and you're an amillennialist or a postmillennialist and you're right. Um, either way, at some point, all of humankind will have been resurrected. And resurrection isn't, it's, exa it's exactly what it sounds like. Your physical body coming back up out of the ground. And all Christians since the time of Christ have affirmed this is uh, the case. Now, there are some people who uh, call the, profess the name of Christ who deny this doctrine, and they're wrong. But the point is, we as Christians believe in resurrection, and hell is where resurrected people are going to be sent. It's not where people go immediately when they die. And so according to the doctrine of eternal torment, it's not merely suffering forever. It is people who have been made supernaturally immortal when they are raised from the dead. And, this, and not just immortal in the soul, like a lot of you have probably heard of the phrase immortality of the soul, and yeah, that's worthy of discussion. I'm talking, though, about the, re the immortality of whole resurrected persons, soul, and body. And you go back to those earliest church fathers that taught eternal torment that I mentioned a moment ago, Tatian and Athenagoras. You go to Thomas Aquinas and Jonathan Edwards and Augustine of Hippo, Mark Driscoll, John Piper, Wayne Grudem, Gary Brashears, and a host of others. And they will, they, yes, they say the resurrected lost will be made immortal and live forever, but in the bad place rather than the good place. Now, the nature of that torment is up for debate. So believers in eternal torment, will some of them think that it's physical torture. Um, there was a guy named Minucius Felix in like the 300s who, set, who called the fires of hell a curious fire because it simultaneously melted off the flesh of the wicked and at the same time regenerated it for all eternity. And I'll let you decide if that makes any sense. Um, but then, am I running out? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll speed up. Um, but then there are people who think it's more of sort of a metaphor for separation from God of some sort, whatever that means. So there are different views there. And, then of course, and within this view, people debate whether people who've never heard of Christ would go there or whether, um, whether it's possible to repent after you are raised from the dead before going into hell. Jerry Walls, I think, would say that people do, etc. So that's their view. They have a lot of scripture that they, well, they don't. They have a few texts that they think supports their view. Jesus says in Matthew 25, 41, depart in, into the eternal fire prepared, prepared for the devil and his angels. Then he goes on to speak of eternal punishment versus eternal life. There's the torment forever in the lake of fire in Revelation and so forth. And we'll talk about all that tonight, um, depending upon what questions were asked. Theologically, they lean on the fact that it took the God-man to save us. It took God incarnate to suffer the punishment we deserve. And they argue, therefore, the, the, the guilt must be infinite. And the only way for a finite human being to bear an infinite penalty is to go on bearing it for eternity. Philosophically, they will say it's not uh, any other punishment other than eternal punishment would, would not be sufficient for the crime. It would, it, would, it would be something less than the punishment deserved, um, and it would, not, it would not account for the degrees of guilt. Um, so I've talked about the history, the scripture, theology, and philosophy, and we'll talk more tonight. 
The other view that most people are aware of is universalism, universal restoration. There's a few different terms for it. And I want to be really clear that when I call this a Christian view, I'm not talking about the view that says everybody goes to heaven no matter what they believe, sort of outright pluralism. That's not what I'm talking about. That isn't Christian. But there are genuine, committed evangelical Christians who affirm that nobody is saved except through faith in Christ. But what they think is that at the resurrection, those who go to hell will remain alive there until they repent and express saving faith in Christ and then come out of hell. Right? And this, and I don't see anything heretical in that. It may be completely baseless. <laughs> That's my view anyway, but it is nevertheless a Christian view. Now, historically, they can appeal to uh, right around the same time as Tatian and Athenagoras. You've got Origen of Alexandria and Clement of Alexandria, and you've got other church fathers who taught the same thing. Biblically, you know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, as in Adam all die, so all in Christ will be made alive. Um, or Philippians 2, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So they've got some biblical text there. Theologically, um, if Christ, it, 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 and for those of you that aren't Calvinists, this you'll have to wrestle with this. I don't because I'm a Calvinist. But for those of you who aren't a Calvinist and you think that Jesus died for everybody, well, then why is not everybody saved? And you're going to have answers for that, and that's fine. But the point is they will say Christ died for all, so all must be saved. Philosophically, they'll say the only way that God can be the all-loving, maximally loving being that we believe as Christians that he is, is if he eventually does save everybody, however it is that that might look. So they've got the history, they've got the scripture, they've got the theology, and they've got the philosophy, and they're wrong. Now, I've told you the two wrong views, let's talk about the right view. (laughs) The view that I often hear many people have not heard of, sometimes is called annihilationism, I prefer to call it conditional immortality. And the reason why is because, as I said, both eternal torment and universalism believe that resurrected people will be made immortal in soul and body and go on living physically forever. Their disagreement is just about where they will live, right? So eventually universalists think everybody will live in heaven, but in the meantime, some will live in hell for a while, whereas traditionalists believe everybody will live forever in hell. So they are both forms of unconditional immortality, meaning there are no conditions anybody has to meet in order to be made immortal. By contrast, I believe in conditional immortality. I think scripture consistently teaches that the only hope that anyone has to be made immortal and go on living forever is saving faith in Christ. And so what does that mean? It means that those who are resurrected and aren't in Christ will still be mortal. And what do mortal things do? They die. And if you look, and so speaking biblically, all throughout scripture, the warned of punishment is death and destruction. Um, believers in the other two views like to say that the language of death is a little bit more um, nuanced than I'm making it out to be, and we can have that discussion on the panel. But um, take, for example, Matthew 10:28. Don't, don't fear men who can kill the body but cannot fear, kill the soul. Fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And believers in soul torment are going to say, well, destroy can mean lost, like the lost son, or ruined, like uh, apple, you know, like fruit, or whatever. But every time that word is used in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where human beings are the direct object of that verb, it means kill. Herod wanted to destroy the baby Jesus. He didn't want to ruin or lose him. He wanted to kill him. And so, too, did the Pharisees want to kill the adult Jesus. And then there are a host of other passages I could appeal to, but I'm cognizant of the fact I'm almost out of time. Well, I need two more minutes to finish up. Historically, my view, I would argue, goes back even earlier than those other two views. So Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch, right around the first century, seem to teach my view. Irenaeus of Lyon. Athanasius seems to speak to this. 
um, and it's become increasingly popular today. Theologically, um, there was something I wanted to say here, but I've forgotten. Um, oh, well, think about it this way. So we believe in substitutionary atonement. Even if you don't think it's penal substitutionary, we believe Jesus bore what was coming to us. Well, what did Jesus bear? He died. So why then would believers in eternal, eternal torment think the resurrected lost will never die if Jesus bore that punishment for them? So we think that theologically there's motivation here. And then philosophically, we, I think, would say that um, God, if he is as opposed to evil as he ought to be, as a maximally good being, would not guarantee that sin exists forever by supernaturally, miraculously making people immortal who will go on sinning for all eternity. Philosophically, we think it makes much more sense that God would finally get rid of evil finally and forever. So anyway, I think this is going to be a good conversation, and uh, I'll look forward to having it. Sorry I went over my time. Thank you. So I'm going to have you guys just introduce yourselves, tell us your name, a little bit of what you do, why I might ask you to come on, and if you want to say, like, what team you're repping for, because Chris did a, he threw a lot of shade. He was like, and they're wrong, and they're wrong. So this is your chance to be like, <clears throat> you know. Uh, and then we'll start asking questions. Sound good? Want to start us off? My name is Paul Sloan. I teach theology. Sorry, 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 sorry. <clears throat> Which one's better? Um, I teach, uh, my name's Paul Sloan. I teach theology at Houston Baptist University. And uh, I, yeah. Um, teach New Testament in the Gospels. Uh, that's probably why I was asked up here. And um, I'm also soon to become the, the t- a teaching pastor at Baptist Temple uh, Church in the Heights. So, Hey guys, I'm Oscar. I teach literature. I teach uh, apologetics at West University Baptist Church. And I'm currently a seminary student at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. Neither of you said what team you're repping for. I just thought you would want um, to. I'm closer to the uh, annihilation view. I uphold the traditional view. There was no whoops on the traditional view? <laughs> Everyone's like, yes, eternal conscious torment. Woo! Hey. I'm Meredith. I'm pastor of Westminster Methodist. Um, and I. so the funny thing about planning for this particular topic is I realize that people who are like really strong traditionalists don't come to my church. So like, (laughs) I'm not used to having this particular conversation. I'm used to having the conversation where I'm convincing people hell is even an option on the table. And I can have that debate all day long. Uh, So this is like, this is a different level of debate for me. Uh, So I'm not really even sure. I'm on team hell exists in some format. Cheering. Um, That's cheering. Yeah. Uh, I'm Bradley Varnell. I'm one of the priests at Christ Church Episcopal uh, downtown. Um, and I probably lean towards uh, hell is very real and always there, but uh, hold out for universalism. We didn't, we didn't get whoops for that either. Y'all only whoop for annihilationism? Wow. I am shocked by that. Uh, Juan Carlos Martinez. I'm an associate pastor at Christ Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a PCA church, Presbyterian Church in America, and I ha- um, hold to the biblical view. I'm sorry, the, the traditional, the traditional is view. He and I are going to get along well. Um, so you guys know now I'm Chris Date. I am an elder in development at Table of Hope Community Church in Puyallup, Washington. 
and I'm an adjunct professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. Uh, and I'm, as you know now, on the annihilationist side. So. All right, cool. So I think maybe the whoops were just for Paul Sloan, maybe not for annihilationism. They were like, Paul, he, he has like a fan club out there. It gets embarrassing. Anyway. He always gets best dressed. <laughs> no, he does look sharp. That's, that's, that's Patrick. That's right. But Patrick's not up here. He's in the crowd. He's in the mix. Okay. So uh, first question I'm going to put up to you guys is this. If hell is not a punishment, then what would be the need of God or to believe in God? Like, why live for a relationship with God or pursue God if I don't face anything for not calling him Lord of Lords if hell isn't real? Now, I know that nobody said hell isn't real, but I think you know where this person is going with this. If you don't have to live there forever in torment, then why even pursue a relationship with God? Huh? Into the mic, lady. Wait, so so death isn't punishment. That's what you're saying. Like y'all are cool with that. I mean, I, I I mean, I don't see any of the options presented up here except for universalism, in which there is no punishment. But even the universalism that was presented, there was punishment until they until repentance. And so, um, yeah, I, I suppose if you don't think death is a punishment, then go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that there's a reason we call it the death penalty, right? It is, people want to go on living generally. That's why people are pouring hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars into the transhumanist movement to try to achieve immortality through technology. They're going to never succeed, by the way, and if they do, it's, we're still going to have a sin-ridden world. Why do you keep pointing at me? Oh, yeah, right. So, so people want to go on living, and if they, and we, and Christ is the opportunity to go on living. So I agree with you. And like I said, those Christian universalists who believe people will go to hell for potentially eons until they repent also believe in punishment. So I don't know why, I don't honestly don't know where this question comes from, honestly. I mean, I think there's also the reason so many people follow Christ and go to church, give their lives to God, whatever your view of hell isn't because you're kind of getting out of the fire zone. Um, it's because of the beauty and goodness of God, right? I mean, you don't have to believe in hell to look around and say there's cancer and there's poverty and there's oppression. And I think the hope of the gospel is in large part that God is creating and, and will redeem a world where those are no longer things. So that, that is, I think, reason enough to, to fall in love with the gospel. Amen. Quickly, though, I think the questioner has a point. Uh, I think it's an interesting question because if the unbeliever believes that at death they stop existing or that's kind of the end of who they are and their time that they've been allowed, um, it seems interesting to me that the annihilationist position kind of gives them exactly that. Yeah, I don't think that's fair. I mean, for one thing, we believe in a resurrection unto facing the almighty God whose, whose existence they are denying for, throughout their life, number one. And number two, the very people who believe they're going to cease to exist when they die are the ones who wish they could go on living. And we give them the opportunity to get that eternal life. So I just wholeheartedly disagree with you there. Well, I wasn't saying that they're right in their evaluation. I'm just saying I think it's interesting that they, they do, in a way, end up getting what they think they're going to get anyway. And what they wish they didn't get. But there is, again, there, there is a point in time with the annihilationist position where it really won't matter anymore, right? Maybe, maybe there's some suffering beforehand, and, which is terrible, and it's always worse than eternal life. But uh, if you're annihilated at some point, you won't even know. It would be the same. So, so the saying from Jesus, it would have been better had you never been born. There will come a time when that actually won't be true anymore. 
for the for the one who's annihilated. But that's like saying that people going to prison for 30 years are facing a worse punishment than people who are killed on the electric chair. Because after all, it's not going to matter once they're gone, but if they stay 30 years in prison, they're going to face a much worse punishment. Of course not. The deprivation of all life, death, is a terrible penalty, even if people aren't around after they're killed. No, but that's not true. Everybody who faces the death penalty is conscious. They're conscious up until the moment they breathe their last. And they're terrified. Juan Carlos, yeah. you got to eat that mic, friend. It's already started. <laughs> okay. Just have one would be great. Yeah. But this is uh, defining something as a penalty only if a person's aware of it. I mean, something can be a penalty without the person being aware of it being a penalty. Because a penalty is defined with reference to the, that person not experiencing the positive thing. Um, so a person not being aware of the penalty is not um, a characteristic of it being a penalty. And, and, and it goes back to the, um, I, sorry, what was your name? Bradley. It goes back to Bradley's point about the, um, the goodness of God, I mean, like the, or the goodness of the gospel. The question defines uh, the penalty in terms of its negative attributes um, ceasing to exist or whatever. But the gospel has as its goal that a person will finally be and do what he or she was created to be. So, I mean, positively, you were created for God. That's your telos. That's the, the, the thing that you were made to be to be is to be with God. And so anything less than that is, is the negation of that, so a penalty. So I don't think um, being aware of the penalty is a sufficient um, characteristic of it being still characterized as a penalty. Just to add to that, I do want to say, I do think you need to be aware when the penalty is inflicted, right? If, if somebody's asleep and they're found guilty of a crime that, is mer that merits death and they're killed while they're asleep, I don't, I'm not convinced that they're punished, at least not in the truest sense of the term. But somebody who's marched to the electric chair and they're weeping and gnashing or burned at the stake or crucified on a cross, that's a penalty. As long as they're aware when the penalty is inflicted, I think it's a penalty. Bradley, I saw you make a face. Did you want to say one more thing? I was going to move oh, us on. It otherwise. was very colorful. Just stakes and crosses. and That's racist. Right? <laughs> okay. Bring back so we states. have so many questions. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rush you guys sometimes and move us on. We're not going to find the end-all be-all to all these. But the next question is this. Do you think there will be a chance after death to surrender to Christ? Do you think there will be a chance after death to surrender to Christ? I know different ones of you will have different answers here, maybe. I mean, to that, I just immediately think of the verse that says, it is appointed to man once to die, and then comes the judgment. So it doesn't seem to imply that there is another chance after death, but, I mean, someone else can interpret that differently. I don't think anybody will have a second chance, but I do. I will defend people who take a different reading of that passage. All that passage says is that People don't die multiple times leading up to judgment. Uh, people die, then comes judgment, but doesn't say what's going to happen in between. So I'm a little reluctant to use that as a proof text, but I actually agree. I don't think people will have a second chance. I don't see a, a, a explicit testimony in Scripture to it. What I see is people like the author of Hebrews saying, now is the opportunity. Um, there's, a there's a sense of urgency, and I don't see how that sense of urgency makes sense if you will forever and ever and ever continue to have that chance. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I'd say with the Hebrews thing, I'd agree with your interpretation of it, or that, that it, 
after death comes judgment doesn't necess- necessitate that upon death comes judgment. It just means that judgment is a thing that happens after death, so that it could leave room for it. Again, though, the question is right. I mean, is there positive evidence for it? Um, I mean, you've, get, you've got the parable um, in the Gospels about uh, Jesus saying, like, settle with your person before you, you are taken to court, or else you'll have to, you know, pay the last penalty, the penny. Um, that, that, that was taken by some early interpreters as, as saying that the, 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 the payment of the penalty takes place in Gehenna or whatever, the, 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 the Hades afterworld, um, and then that, that's the settlement. Um, but yeah, and some people have taken that as well with Revelation 20 and 21, um, with the fact that after, the, the, um, after throwing death and Hades into the lake of fire, after that, there is... Um, uh, uh, no more tears and everyone's uh, weeping is weeping goes away and, and, and then there's no more death or curse. And then it talks about the, the, the heavenly city. Um, it says that in the, the leaves of the tree of, of life are for the healing of the nations. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's an image in the end of Revelation. So it's an image that comes after the depiction of the lake of fire. And, and it mentions that the leaves of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations. And up to that point in Revelation, the nations have mostly been sort of the bad guys. Um, not always, not in, ev- not in every instance by any means, but in lots of instances in the, um, in the book of Revelation, the bad guys have been sort of the nations or whatever else. So the fact that like the, the tree of the, le- the leaves, of, leaves the of the tree of life are for the healing of the nations has been interpreted by some as sort of positive evidence for the hopeful thing, right? Not, not sort of as evidence of proof positive of universalism, but like a, hey, look, this sort of leaves that are open, that sort of thing. Um, so... Okay. Yeah. Can I say one thing? Yes. It's it's also, I mean, in, in this case, by the way, I'm glad the, our annihilationist friends here depart from company with the Jehovah's Witnesses at this point and, and uh, you know, actually believe in, in the, the one chance, or at least Chris does. Um, Jesus teaches on this point somewhat in, in the parable uh, of Lazarus and the rich man, where he speaks of uh, a chasm that is so great that it can't be surmounted. Here's a, here's a man in this parable that, that, that would like an opportunity to repent. There is no opportunity, not only for him, but for anyone who does not believe in the teachings of Moses uh, uh, and the prophets. In other words, the word of God. Uh, even if someone were to be raised from the dead, Jesus says they will not believe. So, so I think that it's, it's a very difficult uh, thing to surpass. That, uh, the, the barrier, if you will, that Jesus raises at that point is hard to surpass. I actually agree with you. But, but it doesn't ever say in there, does it, that the man wanted to repent? First he wanted his tongue to be cooled, and then he wanted his, his brothers to know. But he actually never was like, I've got some, some come-to-Jesus moments to have here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so he himself doesn't say that. He, he would like for his brothers right. uh, to, I guess, to I turn, guess it's turn away from their, their current life. But yes. Well, and even if, even if he doesn't express a desire to be saved, he is told by Abraham there is a chasm that can't be crossed. Yeah. And I think that was my brother's point. Okay, so this next question is for those of you up here that are more in the Reformed camp. I think there are at least three of you up there that are. I think it's a nice split panel on that front. Anyone can speak to this, but first our Reformed folks. It says, if we believe that God takes the first and necessary step to awaken our spirit, to even be able to say yes to him, that without his spirit moving, we would stay dead in our sin, then how do we reconcile that God would then punish either eternally or for a time those who didn't choose him when they effectively never had the chance. I'm Do you want me to say to it again? It's kind of long, but I can. No, I'm, I'm just interested to know who else is reformed besides me. 
So, okay, awesome. I'm with the two traditionalists on this one. That's awesome. <laughs> Leader, of you want to go first? Okay. <laughs> so, I, I think there's a, a, I think that Calvinism is, and predestination and reprobation are very often misunderstood by its critics. It's not that people, it's not like people's hands are tied behind their back and they so desperately want to repent or anything like that. No, they love their sin. Nothing is forcing them to do what they do. Yes, they've been determined, especially if you count yourself a theistic determinist Calvinist like I am, but that nothing's forcing their hand. Um, they are making the choice to reject Christ and to do the sins that they do. And so even though, yes, as a Calvinist, I believe God must work in their hearts in order to awaken them to, uh, to the reality of Christ and, and motivate them to embrace him, Nevertheless, I still think they can be justly held accountable for their sins because they are doing exactly what they want to do. In other words, I don't think you necessarily have to have the moral capacity to do, some, to, to do right in order to be held accountable for your desire to do evil. That would be my take, but I'd be interested in what you guys have to say. Yes, uh, Romans 9 is helpful in that this, the same kind of objection I think that's being raised here, which is a very normal objection, um, Paul himself raises, even if rhetorically, where he says, why does he still find fault? Uh, you know, who, who, can, who, who can resist God's will, in other words? And the answer he gives maybe is not the answer that we would like, uh, spelled out for us, uh, QED, uh, but it is an answer that is fitting for, for the chasm in this case between the creature and the creator, and that is um, you know, that, that God is the one uh, we, we the, the creature the, does not have the right to say the, to the creator, why have you made me like this? Um, God is good. He's better than we are. He is more just than we are. And are, uh, we, at, at some point, we have to trust that he will do... Um, that n nobody at the, at the day of judgment is going to complain that unfairness has happened. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, but, but I think the, the, other, the other point uh, to make on this is that Part of the reason why it's difficult for us to fathom that is because, you know, all of us are, are sinners. And so we're not offended by sin, even by our own sin, the way that, you know, one day even we will uh, after the resurrection when we are with Christ in glory. Um, and, and so the, the idea of a completely just being that will be able to be the arbiter of all things without anybody being able to raise a fist against him is unthinkable to us. We, we know nobody like that except God is not like us in, in, that, in that way. And furthermore, I think the way that the question is posed kind of seems to imply that like God owes us salvation or God owes us rescue or that he's obligated in any way to save anyone. And Ephesians in Ephesians 2 says that salvation is by grace and not of work. So there's nothing that you could do to actually earn it. If you are saved at all, it's because Christ has graciously, mercifully rescued you. And it, to demand it of God would then kind of cancel out his mercy because if you could have done something to earn it, then you would be getting your just dessert. And we see there in Ephesians that we couldn't actually earn salvation by anything that we do. To, to the point of the person asking the question, because a few people pose something similar to this. I don't know it, that it's necessarily that God owes us that, but if he's going to create people knowing that some won't even ha quote, have the chance to say yes, it seems a little macabre that he would then be like, aha, eternal conscious torment. I'm characterizing it. I mean, I don't think that's the case, but I think that's kind of what the people are asking. I, yeah, I think this is the problem that, that pushes me towards a more hopeful kind of, you know, God is saving all. Um, 
precisely because I don't think you can escape the problem biblically, right? I mean, Romans is very clear that, you know, when, when push comes to shove, there's only so much wrestling and haranguing we can do with God, right? We can say, why is this the case? I mean, Paul wrestles with Israel's lack of faith, I mean, through, through you know, the, the core of Romans. And I think we can do that, but at some point we'd have to say God is God, is God and we are not, right? God doesn't, like, like you're saying, God might not owe us, owe us salvation. And in so many ways, right, the wrath of God against sin is justified. But I think that's precisely where even within Romans and Romans 5 and in some of, some of Paul's narrative, right, there's this push of um, it is precisely because we're so trapped that the overwhelming power of what God has done in Christ wakes us up to that, right? It, it both allows us, uh, the elect, those who realize what Christ has done to accept it, to rejoice in that mercy. And also, I think at the end, towards the end of 11, Paul says, uh, you, Paul writes, God has consigned all to, to sin so that I might have mercy on all, right? That, that tension of there is wrath and there is just punishment, and yet what Christ has done in the cross seems to explode our own ability to respond. Um, I think it introduces attention to that, that I don't think I don't think we can resolve easily, which is why I think you have to hold both both as being true, that the wrath of God is real, that God's ability to say I'm God and you're a creature is true. And also when we look at what Christ does, I think it invites us to say perhaps perhaps God is doing far more than we think in, in rescuing rescuing all of us. Can I say one more thing real quickly? Sorry. I, I promise I'm not gonna talk with every question. Um, the, on Romans 1, uh, Paul writes that every person actually has the opportunity in a sense uh, because the, um, God's eternal power and divine nature are made manifest by the very things that he has made, including us. Right? So, so there really is nobody, uh, there, there isn't anyone who, who can claim on that day, well, I, I didn't know that I was sinning. Uh, so, so, so the guilt, in other words, is there and we bear it. Um, even if, if the, the corrupt nature is something that precedes us, um, the, the guilt is something that we, we have as well. I heard, yeah, you were married. Uh, Somebody made a noise. Like, but also, and, and, and I'm an Episcopalian, so, you know, Bible's rough a little bit. Um, but even in Romans 1, right, there's, there's, Paul talks about this narrative of our sin and our fall, right, how Gentiles turn from God, there's idolatry, and our reasoning, our ability to see God's work in nature becomes corrupted. So I don't think it's the case that we're all kind of born with the ability to read God off of creation and then over the course of 28 years or however long it fades. Rather, I mean, humanity as a whole, none of us are starting in a neutral place, right? So that humanity centuries, millennia ago is confined to this place of sin where where we don't have a neutral place to say, oh, well, we knew, but then we lost it, right? We're born into a, a situation where we're trapped. And we, precisely because of that, we need God to bust in and say, okay, I'm going to clean up this mess. I thought for sure you were going to take the mic back and say the thing about, so no one's without excuse. Uh, yes, you did. Okay. Uh, does anybody else want to speak or are we, okay, moving on, moving on. I was hoping someone would ask this question and somebody did. Since Christians generally affirm God's omnipresence, meaning that God is everywhere, 
Uh, what is the defense for hell as eternal separation from God, since that would require the existence of a place in creation where God is not? I've always been intrigued by this idea, so I'm glad. I know who you are that asked this one. So I'll, I'll, I'll start because I think this is a great spot for annihilationism. Um, it's precisely the, one of the reasons why I'm an, an annihilationist, because everywhere that God is, you either enjoy it or can't survive it. Um, and so, I mean, this is this is basic to just this is basic to the like Levitical system of Jewish sacrifice. Like, if you want to approach God safely in the temple, you have to be in a state of purity, not because God doesn't like you or something, but simply because humans in an impure state can't handle God and His immortality. So, again, this isn't an issue of malice, sort of God not liking you. It's just an issue of like you're dry wood and you can't survive the sun, right? And the sun is 93 million miles away, and you can't even look at the sun. Right? The sun is 93 million miles away, and you can't Y'all look at it. Y'all know you're getting a science lesson tonight, too. I actually don't know if the math is right on that. I was. Uh, uh, it's real far. A, f- a, f- a freshman astronomy student told me that was the number. So I was like, whatever, I'm taking your word for it. Um, it's a really far away, and you can't even look at it, right? Much less like the uncreated creator in the same sort of domicile, and you're trying to get close. So you can't handle it, not because God doesn't like you, but you, just, you can't handle it. Um, and so if you approach them in a state of impurity because of your literally physical nature, you'll just, you'll be consumed. And so that's why you get the call, like, be holy as I'm holy, so that we can be in the same, you know, uh, uh, world together. So uh, the, the way I'd trans- translate that, if I'm going to keep using the fire analogy, would be like, look, I'm fire, so you got to become steel uh, instead of dry wood. Because if you become dry wood in my presence, you're just going to be toast. But if you become steel and you come into my presence, then you'll both survive it. And you'll actually, like, what happens to steel when it gets in the presence of fire? It gets red and hot, right? And begins to take on the properties of the fire without ceasing to become steel. And so this is, this is like, this is the Christian vision. Like, humans in the presence of God become more human without ceasing to be human, right? Because they become more like God. All this is to say that, like, yeah, I think that this, this basic system that is just sort of the worldview of, like, Judaism um, is that, like, Mortal humans can't handle the presence of God unless mortal humans are transformed into immortal ones. Um, and so you're either immortal and can survive it, or you're eventually annihilated. Uh, so that's one thing. The other thing I'd say is, uh, in defense of sort of the um, non-annihilationist view, um, I, I'd, I would still say that, yeah, that, like, even, even in the Old Testament, there's, a, there's, a, there's an under... Even in the Old Testament, in Leviticus, you get you get a description of um, God's presence, both being in the temple and yet not being confined to it. Right. So, I mean, when Solomon dedicates the temple in First Kings eight, I mean, he says like, "Thank you that you're here," and also we understand that heaven and earth couldn't contain you. So, there's an understanding that yes, God is omnipresent, but He's able to sort of make His presence known in certain spaces. So, for those who are not annihilationists, I suspect you could sort of use that as like, okay, he's he's made his presence known here, but he's also made his presence known over here in a mitigated sense so that you can sort of survive without being near it. Um, I like how you're throwing a bone to the other people. Like, you might say this. That's great. He's more yeah. charitable than I am. So. Uh, yeah, so all to say, that's one reason why I think the annihilationism thing works um, because it seems to be Paul's point. For example, and since we've been using a lot of texts, um, uh, 2 Thessalonians 1, right, that the penalty is eternal, Destruction. Yeah, the word is destruction. Uh, the penalty for not believing the gospel is eternal destruction. And it's de- eternal destruction away from the presence of God. Well, hold on. Hold on. So, 
so, annihilationist versus annihilationist. You saw it here. Okay. Well, so I, I've done a lot of looking into second Thessalonians. But real quick, when y'all hold the mic, you need to just hold it like a gangster, keep it there, and the sound people will adjust. You keep pulling it further and further away, and they keep turning it up and up and up. So, yeah. All right. So, yes, some translations butcher second Thessalonians 1.9 and render it away from. The Greek preposition apa just means from. And actually what Paul is doing with his language of destruction forever and from the presence of the Lord is he's actually alluding to the Psalms of Solomon in which that which which scholars recognize was an annihilationist text, um, which says the exact same thing, talks about sinners being destroyed and their, their days coming to an end by destruction from the presence of the Lord, the very exact same uh, language that he's using. So traditionalists do sometimes pretend as if 2 Thessalonians 1.9 supports this idea of separation, but it's really not there, in, in my estimation anyway. Okay, let's, let's hear from the traditionalists. How can hell exist in any kind of space that God exists in? In any kind of space that, that I God, can ask the question again if you want. That God is no. Well, I I think that the the traditional position would not be that that hell implies separation from God. It, it implies the judgment of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Chris mentioned this in his, in his talk that it's it's not that Satan and his demons are in charge in hell and they are the ones that are torturing everyone. The lake of eternal torment is very much for them, and, and so it, it is God who who is who is judge even in that moment. Um, I mean, there's there's judgment today. God is everywhere, and there's judgment today. And uh, but but to go back to the word destroy, um, in in Jude five, Jude five and six, uh, there Jude mentions um, that that God, you know, delivers some in the Exodus, but others He destroys, and that and that does that's a that's a a, a word that implies judgment. It doesn't necessarily mean annihilate. God didn't annihilate. Those people, in fact, they are waiting the day of judgment like everyone else, even though they are destroyed. But he didn't kill them. Yeah, and, that, yeah. and that's the thing about the traditional view is that the resurrected lost will never die. The, no, they, I mean, they've, they've already died. right? But they're I mean, resurrected people, and they're alive. And, they're, and, they're, and, the, and final the, punishment takes place after resurrection, right? Yes. When they will never die. When, the, when they will never, they, they will have eternal death. Yes. They will be living in immortal. No, they, the state of death will be permanent for them. So this is a good question to ask you. So do you just think that traditionalists throughout church history have been sloppy with their language? Because if you read, I don't mean any offense by that. If you read Tatian of Adiabene, Augustine of Hippo, Manusius Felix, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Spurgeon, Wayne Grudem, John Piper, everybody throughout church history has said, that believe in the eternal torment view anyway, that the resurrected lost the, 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 the quality of immortality that their soul enjoys will be extended to their bodies in the resurrection and they will live forever in hell. So when people, so I mean, I, I get why um, people who hold to your view feel the need to try to temper that language, but I don't understand why. They're, they're resurrected, which by definition is a return to physical life, and they remain physically alive for all eternity, and that's what tr- traditionalists throughout church history have called immortality. So I'm just wondering, why do you, do you think they were just sloppy with the language? Or? No, no. I mean, I can't defend uh, John Piper or you know a, a multi- multiple other theologians that I might agree with here and there. But if they're sloppy with their language, Peter isn't sloppy with his language. Neither is John. Neither is Jesus, for that matter. And I think that's so. So what I appreciate of uh, you know in, in your argument is that even though you ran out of time, as you were trying to go back to the scripture and say, well, let's see what the Bible actually has to say to this. And I think that's what's important. So. Um, Matthew 25, right? Uh, in, in Matthew 25, um, Jesus uh, is speaking about eternal 
uh, punishment. He'll speak about eternal punishment juxtaposed with eternal life, ultimately in verse 46. But what precedes it actually is this parallelism between those who will inherit eternal life and those who will uh, be eternally punished, as, as is the conclusion. And it's, it's almost one-to-one. The only difference is the word not. You know, you didn't, you, whereas the, those who inherit eternal life, they, they fed, they clothed, they visited. Those who don't inherit eternal life, but inherit eternal punishment, don't do those things. And it's almost a perfect parallelism. And then the conclusion is, it talks about eternal punishment uh, is what one, one said, that the goats are going to receive, and, and eternal life, which is what God's sheep will receive. And, and that's helpful because it's not simply um, that, it, that it's punishment implies um, justice being done. Uh, it's not simply that, 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 a, a, um, that a sentence has been passed and now, now it's done, but it's eternal. Uh, and, and that word eternal uh, it, is, it, it really, I mean, for all practical purposes, always means eternal. Now, one might say, well, yes, but the, but the, the judgment can be eternal. In its, in its significance, in the sense that it's final and it won't be done. And so if you're annihilated, you can be eternally annihilated, and, and maybe that's what it means, right? But I, but I think that um, the, there's other places in Scripture. Let me, let me see if I can find. Uh, so um, where, where it talks about eternal punishment happening right now, I, I wrote it down earlier. In, uh, so Second Peter, Second Peter 2.9 says... That, that what happens to the unrighteous until the, until the day of judgment is punishment. And the same, the same word is used there, um, which is kolatso. They're, they're being punished until the day of judgment right now. But it's an eternal punishment. So, so the punishment that is happening in this moment will continue because it's eternal in its case. Wait, wait, wait. Now, I'm going to pause. I'm yes. loving the sparring. But we have so many questions. Yes. I just, and I know some other panelists want to speak to this. But maybe you guys can, like, after hours, spar between these two gentlemen at the end. But does somebody else want to say anything about this question before? About the space. If, well, you actually answered the question. Oscar, just, did you, you just, or Meredith or Bradley yeah. can answer? Just quickly, because he, first of all, uh, Juan Carlos, thank you for bringing up eternal punishment. Because so far, uh, Paul and uh, Chris have both brought up destruction, uh, to be destroyed, death, and so on. But it's not the only series of conditions that are brought up when talking about eternality. Uh, there are different places where some are raised to eternal life, others are raised to eternal shame, eternal contempt. These are like psychological conditions where like, you have to be conscious of it in order to suffer it, or even punishment. Um, but back to the actual question, this is from Revelations 14, talking about those who would worship the beast. Uh, and by the way, later on in Revelation, this is also the punishment suffered by those whose name was not found in the book of life. And it says, if anyone but worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead and so on and so on, the wine of God's wrath will be poured out full strength into the cup of his anger. And he, this person, whoever takes the mark of the beast or whoever's name is not found in the book of life will be tormented uh, with fire and sulfur. And this is the key word to address the question in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And here, Lamb is capitalized because it's indicating the Lamb of God, uh, which is, of course, Jesus Christ. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day and night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. And again, later on in Revelation, it says, this same penalty is endured by those whose uh, name was not found in the book of life. So I wanted to add that in there. I know that Chris and Paul are both dying to keep going on this, but I'm going to take us to another question because I want some of y'all to get representation up here. Uh, sorry. I know. No, no, no. I'm, I'm moving us on. I know it's torture. 
much like eternity if you say no to Jesus. Okay. This person wrote two questions that are similar. They're not the exact same, but I like them both. So I'm going to ask them both. If you can pick one or the other, or maybe see how they connect. First one says, so I think you're saying Hades is a holding tank of sorts. Do all people go there? Those destined to eternal life with God and those not? That's her, his or her first question. I don't know why I assume it's a her. The second one says, what is the abyss that is referenced in the story of um, the pigs from Luke? Where did the devil and demons reside before eternal judgment? So both questions are about this space of before eternal judgment. One for humans and one for not just pigs, but devils and the, the you know, Satan himself. Thoughts? Well, so people will disagree on, on Hades. Um, my take is that, yes, the Jewish view was that everybody goes to Hades or Sheol in the Hebrew, whether they're saved or they're not, whether they're righteous or they're unrighteous. The story of Lazarus and the rich man does say that Lazarus is, or the, yeah, Lazarus is being comforted in the bosom of Abraham. And some people think that that's like a compartment within Hades. No, it's just he's being comforted in the lap of, the, of his forefather. It's, there's no special meaning there. But some Christians do think that what Christ did when he descended into Hades is take the captives free out of Hades and into heaven. I don't think that there's merit for that view, but that is a, a, a view. In which case, if that's true, up until Christ's death and resurrection, everybody went to Hades, righteous or unrighteous alike. Um, and then after that, only the unrighteous go to Hades until resurrection. But theologians debate it. As for the abyss, I really don't, I can't speak much to that, so I'll have to lean on somebody else there. I would also love to just add my own question about the devils. Are there any devils right now that are imprisoned? Well, yeah, I mean, Jude and Peter both say as much that, there, that the angels who, like, gave up their own the proper estate in the time of Noah are being held in chains of gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. And that's what Peter's talking about when he uses that verb tartarao, cast into Tartarus. He's saying they are in a place of judgment awaiting the final judgment. But it's not the final judgment, and in the final judgment, it's, um, I mean... Take, for example, the work of Michael Heiser, who argues, I think, pretty persuasively that the divine council in Psalm 82 are divine beings. They're angels. And what does the psalm go on to say? That they will die like men. So it seems as though the angels are being held for a final judgment, but that final judgment is one of annihilation, just like the rest of unsaved humanity. Y'all are all nodding. You think that covers it? We move on? Dang, okay, good, because I have a lot of questions. I think they're just being fair since I didn't get to respond to the last stuff that was said. Well, Meredith has almost not talked at all, and you have so many fans in the audience. Okay, maybe this next one will be yours. We'll Can see. I say something? Yeah. This is uh, this is kind of off off topic, but um, on the subject of the, the harrowing of hell, the idea that Christ goes down, and uh, th this is an argument for or against, but um, the Eastern Orthodox tradition has a beautiful uh, iconographic um a tradition around the harrowing of hell. And you should look it up. It's this beautiful image of Christ standing on the, the gates of hell that are defeated, and he's grabbing um, Adam and Eve by the hand and lifting them up. So whether whether that's true or not, it, I think it, it beautifully evokes what the resurrection means. So look it I up. I love that. Okay, I've got two questions that are very similar, so I'm going to ask them both. One says, how can saved individuals be content and happy in heaven if loved ones aren't there? family members, friends, etc. And the other person says, coming from a more universalist position, if we don't all end up in the same place eventually, heaven is still torture for all of the people you never get to see again, isn't it? I know we're supposed to be talking about hell, and this, these are questions about heaven, but they're sort of about heaven feeling like hell, right? So I, I think they're worthy of asking. 
Do you want me to say the first one again? I'll make this really brief because I want to hear what other people have to say, but I will say this. As a parent who has lost two children, I know that you, it's not true that you, that the rest of your life without them is torture. I do think that if I thought my children were in prison in Afghanistan being tortured, I wouldn't be able to enjoy every waking minute of every day. But having lost children, you grieve, but over time it gets better. And so I really can't relate to those who say that if every single person I've ever loved isn't with me in heaven, it wouldn't possibly be heaven. I think that smacks in the face of universal human experience. But that's just my take. Or if I was just only going to say that, um, so similarly, because this is a very experiential sort of question. Um, got two kids, three-year-old and one-year-old, um, and I'm going to jet out as soon as we're done because my wife said, hey, our one-year-old's throwing up, so I'm going to head out pretty quick. Um, I, like, to the other side of that coin, but I think in a pretty comparable spot, I mean, what I love about my kids is, is um, I think that is them, themselves, right? I mean, I love them on their own right, but because of, I mean, the, meta, you know, the, the, the theology that I hold that they are created by God, and so what I at most deep love about them is uh, God's thumbprint on them, right? Um, it, which is to say that, like, sort of who they are is who they are because they are made in the image of God. And so who they are is a reflection of God's own self and love and everything. And so that's not to at all discount they themselves and their own individual rights, but it's to acknowledge that what I love about them, I think, is derivable um, from um, the fact that they are made in the image of God, which is to then say that, uh, let's let's hypothesize that um, you know they're they're not in the new creation or something. Um, I realize this is basically sort of like I'm just therapizing myself into this view, um, but that that I believe I, I can see how sort of theologically it could make sense that I would still be content to the new creation because what I loved in them is present in the in that new creation, namely God Himself. Now, right, I mean, like, so that what I love about Elijah is, is what's most lovable about him is the degree to which he is a reflection of God's own self. And so that in, 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 in the very presence of God, I think that um, what Elijah's, my son's, uh, you know, relationship um, toward me effected was, was, was just a, a reflection of God himself. So now that in the presence of God... Um, I can be contented with that. Now, again, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that uh, that sort of it right now it even feels like I'm talking myself into the view, right? Because I'm, I'm I'm not on that side of it, right? I'm on this side of it, where the prospect of not being with my kids it sounds like you know the worst thing in the world. So um, I don't really have a theological statement except the the, the creation one, the fact that. The, the, the source of my love for my child is the fact that they're, uh, you know, what's most lovable about them is the fact that they're created by God. Yeah, that's a reflection of them, so, yeah. Can you ask the question one more time? I just want to make sure I address it after. I have the next one queued up, but... Um, Never mind. I, I think I remember. I think it's like, how could we be sort of satisfied and enjoy heaven if we know that other people... If we're, like, missing people yeah. that aren't there. Yeah. Um, 
when when I consider this question, I I think about my own sin and how much I deserve punishment. And outside of the grace of God, like God would be totally righteous to punish me. And Psalm 19 says that the fear of the Lord is clean or pure, depending on the translation, enduring forever, and that the judgments of the Lord are righteous altogether. And I think that it's really hard for us to affirm that because we know that that judgment is sometimes aimed at us, uh, and rightfully so. So when we're in heaven, I expect that we will know a lot more clearly and more definitively what God knows, and we will be able to come in and say amen to his righteous judgment and to chant along with the holy angels that God is holy, 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 and that there's no injustice being done if people are suffering in hell. Any last thoughts? Because I have one more question queued up. Maybe two, but probably just one. Okay. If eternal conscious torment exists, does God love the people enduring it? If so, is that really love? Yeah, I agree with whoever whistled. It's a good, it's a good question. I hearted it. Does God, does God love the people enduring the eternal punishment? Yeah, if eternal conscious torment exists, does God love the people enduring it? If so, is that really love? Well, no, I, I, I don't think you can say that God loves the people enduring it. God is judging the people enduring it, judging their sin and judging them. Uh, so, so it wouldn't be, I think, appropriate to, to say that God loves them the way that he loves um, you know, his bride, the way that Christ loves his bride, the church, whom he purifies. Um, the, the holiness of God is something that is difficult for us to understand because, again, we're not holy. The love of God also, um, you know, par- part of the reason why God is just is because he is love in the sense that, you know, he loves his law. He loves himself, rightly, as, as he should. And so any sin, anything that goes against his law, anything that goes against his being is something that he has a righteous anger and a righteous wrath against. Um, and so, you know, Jesus on the cross becomes a curse for us. And, and the wrath of God is satisfied. He is pleased to bruise his son as a substitute for us, which is, again, I mean, unthinkable for us to even imagine the kind of pain that that entails uh, but it's a righteous judgment that 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 takes place there. It's it's actually. I con- want to pause yes. you and ask you a question because I'm 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 trying to mind meld with the audience. Are you saying then that wrath and love cannot coexist from God to us? Like, God. I mean, I think being a parent, we all know that you can be very mad and still love your children, and that God does has every right to feel wrath, but that He still loves us. You know, there's a difference between uh, God. You know, and the Bible speaks to this about God disciplining us, um, and and the wrath of God as uh, that we rightly deserve as His enemies, and those are different things. We were dead in our sins. We were, in fact, God demonstrates His love for us, and that while we were sinners, while we were His enemies, uh, Christ died for us. So, um, and and therefore, though, because He's just, it's not simply that He says, "Well, okay, because I because I I, I love, I'm just going to overlook the sin." Justice still has to be prevail, and which is why the cross is absolutely necessary. And I think you know one of one of the things that we all agree with here, I think uh, by and large, is is the the reality of hell. 
how, how, how that plays out and the length of that and all that is clearly what we're disagreeing on. But I think we also might agree that in, in the solution to that, which God does provide, and that's Jesus Christ, and there's no other solution. And so whether or not we think, well, you know, do we have to change? Do we have to, does God have to change us? Right now, everyone here is hearing that God has provided a way out of hell, if you will, in Jesus Christ. And not just out of hell, but in the positive sense, a way to eternal life and the blessed life that, that is found in him. And so we need to turn to him. Love is found there in, in the one who is lovely, in the beloved. Um, outside of Christ, it's, it's wrath and it's judgment and it's weeping and, and gnashing of teeth. I'll be really fast here. I just want to give a shout out to one of the contributors to a book I'm currently co-editing with Paul Copan. He's a traditionalist. He's on... Uh, He's been on our podcast twice. Uh, uh, Paul Copan has? Yeah. Awesome. Um, well, anyway, the contributor's name is R. Zachary Manis. He's a philosophical theologian who holds to the doctrine of eternal torment. And he published a book with Oxford University Press called Sinners in the Presence of a Loving God. And he actually argues for eternal torment and, and against uh, annihilationism, in my view, on the fact that uh, a, a, loving, a maximally loving God, consistent with classical Christian theology, cannot do anything but eternally torment the lost. And that sounds bizarre, but if you want to learn more about it, I would check that out. Because I think if we start to say that God isn't showing love to every single human being, um, I think we are going to run into some challenges, especially God is love. Yes, he's also holy and he's also just, but he also is love. And if we try to divorce his love from his actions toward every human being, I think we're going to run into issues. I know people want to keep saying more, but I'm aware of the time. That's therapist talk. I'm aware of the time means we're out of time. Um, but but I'm going to ask, I know you have to run because you have a vomitous child, but everybody else, well, the child isn't vomitous, but you know. Uh, if you want to stick around afterwards and have people ask questions or, I don't know, spar with you, or maybe you guys can just, you know, go to toe in front of everyone. I don't know. But um, a couple uh, just quick housekeeping things, and then I'm going to invite Mac Gervais up to close us out. But um, one thing is, like I said, put these polls back over there so we know what we're doing. But at the bottom of this page... I know that there are some questions raised tonight about God's character. Is he loving? Or you may be thinking about people you know that you've lost or that you know one day you're going to lose. I mean, everybody is going to die. And this has real question marks that come up for people. And if you want to talk more about this kind of stuff, I've given you some, some people that you can talk to. There are also people in this room that would love to talk to you, all of us on leadership team, the people on the panel. There are plenty of people just even around among y'all in ministry and I'm just going to give a quick shout out. There is a men's Bible study starting up, multi-denominational. Uh, these two gentlemen in the front row are helping with that. So if you're a guy and you want to get involved in that, come and talk to them. Um, but Matt, come on up and close us out, if you would. And then will you take our picture? Okay. Yeah, well, I think uh, anytime we approach the subject of death, it leads us to think of our own mortality. I know that, uh, and then as you get older in life, uh, and my life, I've got four kids now, and I start thinking about legacy and what it means for me to get old, and they're asking about Gigi and Momo and Pop Pop, are, are they going to die one day? Uh, and so we have these conversations with my six, my five, my two, and now four week old. Uh, but I do think it's interesting, uh, even across all these views here tonight, what we see um, is something that's important and something that's not just a Christian conversation. One of my favorite shows of all time is The Good Place. And it is, you know, the, the 
I know, great show, but uh, the world working out the issue of immortality, right and wrong, and even in a show like The Good Place, which isn't even remotely Christian, uh, people believe that there's right, there's wrong, that we do wrong, and that there should be punishment for the wrong that we do. And ultimately, what I love about the show is that, uh, as people argue, it's not that they lacked knowledge. It's that they were incapable of doing the right thing. So what do we do about that? And I think as we close things out tonight, I want to encourage you that I think we all know that we're not perfect. That's why we come up with New Year's resolutions. We internally reflect and realize that we lack perfection, and then we come up with a plan. And most of us have not adhered to the resolutions that we had just a few months ago Not because we lack knowledge, we had the knowledge, but because we are imperfect and fail. And that is the issue that's at hand here tonight. And so if you're not a Christian, and you don't know what this whole thing is about, but some of these things are kind of pricking with you and making you uh, question, where am I going? What is this all about? I want to encourage you in this, and then I'm going to pray for us. Uh, The point of all of this discussion is not like, how do I stay out of hell? Although that is important. Um... The encouragement throughout Scripture is so that you can know that you'll have eternal life. And that speaks to how you should live today and what God is offering you through peace with him and because of Christ's sacrifice is that you can know today that you are forgiven when you put your faith in him. And so if you've never done that before, uh, the leadership here at Theology on Tap would love to Uh, talk with you afterwards. Uh, Any of the speakers that are up here on stage would love to talk with you and pray for you. But even if you are somebody who finds yourself as a Christian, remember that in 1 John 5.13, he wrote, I want those who know and put their faith in the name of Jesus to know that they have eternal life. And so there is a hope for us that informs how we live each day. Let's pray. God, we thank you just for this day and for each and every person that's uh, here tonight. God, we know that you are perfect and we are not, that we are guilty, and that there is punishment for those who find themselves guilty. But God, we are thankful, as we're about to celebrate in the next week for Easter, that you did send Jesus to live the life that we could not live, and that when we cry out to you, You are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins because of his sacrifice. And God, I pray that would be true um, for us that we experience that grace. And for those that are struggling with that, I pray that this conversation would be the beginning of them wrestling with your love for them. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.